0: I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Tonight's scripture is from Luke 23, verses 50 through 56. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The, woman who, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be to God. You may be seated.
1: the story of Joseph of Arimathea is very important. It's in all four Gospels. And um, it's amazing what's taking place right here. I wasn't going to get into this, but I think it's important is that there's this, this transfer of covenant that's happening in this moment. Writer of Hebrews says that now that Christ has died for our sins, that the old covenant he uses the word obsolete, is obsolete. And so, in this moment of crucifixion, transferring to tomb, to resurrection, there is this great transference of covenant from old covenant to new covenant taking place. And it's this man named Joseph of Arimathea who's called upon for this historic life, I mean, history-changing moment. I mean, think about what all changes, going from underneath the law now to being under Christ and His grace. This is incredible. All of a sudden, the commands, you know how the Bible works, right? People will say all the time, you know, well, you believe in the Bible, but you don't follow all the commands of the Old Testament. Well, we only follow, the only Old Testament commands we follow are those that are mentioned in the New Testament. You know that, right? I mean, there's a reason why we don't stone children who backtalk their parents or whatever it may be. Are you with me? So, but this change has happened now. It's huge. It's huge. We're no longer under the law, now we are under grace. And all of this is happening in this moment that we're reading about tonight. God is doing something in the cosmos that's literally, literally changing human history and eternity forever. And and So every command now that was under the law, again not repeated and given in the New Testament, is no longer followed. Same is true with curses by the way. And you can make the case with promises, we won't get into all that. But now the new covenant is being established in these moments. Everything is changing. And again, it's Joseph of Arimathea who's called on in this moment, mentioned in all four Gospels, to literally be a part of this historic moment. At the end of the text, in Luke 23 verse 55, we see that these women are mentioned. I want to start with them. The women that are mentioned here are those faithful followers that have been following Jesus from Galilee. We saw that earlier uh, in the text in verse 49, I believe it was. And these women who've been following Jesus have now witnessed one of the most horrific scene in human history. Not just another crucifixion, but the crucifixion of the Son of God. They've just watched it. And now they are watching to see what will happen next. They see Jesus' body limp on the cross. And all of a sudden, he's taken down. And all of a sudden, they see a man, there's more than one, I'll get to that in a minute, but they see someone come and begin to take Jesus' body, and it's this man named Joseph. Now we don't know if they knew him or not. We don't know that. But we do know they watched him. They're watching him take Jesus's body, and then they go and follow him as he takes Jesus's body to the tomb. And then something must have happened. It it may have been the way um, Joseph cared for Jesus's body, but something happened and they have trust with this man named Joseph, and they think it's okay to approach In John's gospel, we're told that Nicodemus, you remember Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus at night, we're told that Nicodemus actually was with Joseph during this event taking place as well. But in this event taking place with Jesus being placed in Joseph's tomb, uh, another prophecy is fulfilled. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." We don't know a lot about this man Joseph, but we do know a few things. He was wealthy enough to have his own tomb, probably a family tomb. Uh, There's a lot of things that we see in these really just six verses about him. But again, the women, something, either they knew him or the way he cared for Jesus' body gave them, uh, communicated to them that it is okay that He's on their side. And and I, I point that out because the text tells us that they have all these preparations to make, but there is a holy day coming. The Sabbath is coming. And instead of rushing this process, they take their time in beginning to make the preparations, but then they rest. Then they rest. They enter into this Sabbath's rest, not having to rush, knowing that everything will be taken care of. Again, whatever it was, whether Joseph's relationship with them or what he communicated to them, either by talking or non-verbally or whatever it was communicated to them, it will be okay. He will be okay. We will be able to prepare his body after the Sabbath. And so, one of the questions I have for us is, what did these few verses communicate to us? I've boiled it down to three when it comes to Joseph. And these three center around what Joseph really valued in this moment. His actions communicate to us uh, some very profound truths. I want to start with the first one, and the first one is simply this, is that Joseph was a person who valued Jesus over his position. I would even say he valued Jesus over his position of power because he had a position of power. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council known as the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin in Greek means the council or assembly. This concept of the Sanhedrin goes back to uh, Moses and him calling 40 elders of Israel who were known as leaders and officials from among the people. And he would bring them into the tent of meeting with him and that is where they would stand with Moses and his decisions, things were delegated to them. And, and so we even see in Deuteronomy 16 that judges and officials were, be to, were to be appointed in all the towns that uh, the Lord had given the people. So the land had been divided up uh, among the tribes and in those areas uh, where the tribes settled, there was to be a court. And if a town was big enough to have 120 men, then that town would have its own Sanhedrin, okay? Or assembly or council. The great Sanhedrin was the one in Jerusalem and it was the one that would have been kind of like the Supreme Court for Israel. If disputes could not be settled in a lower Sanhedrin court or a regional Sanhedrin court, they would take them, they would appeal up to the 70 men uh, and the high priest in Israel. During Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin met in the temple and they met every day other than feast days and on the Sabbath. And so, all the questions, again, that were out there, that someone needed something settled, that's where they would go. I guess you could say that the, the great Sanhedrin was the final court of appeals, if you will. But it was also a political juggernaut in that day. They had a lot of power and a lot of say. And their decisions, like a court system, then could be filtered down to all the other Sanhedrins. And so their position within Israel was immense, was immense. Their influence was huge. And then the decisions they made, and again, they met every day except for festivals and on the Sabbath, the decisions they made carried a lot of weight. And so there were people, if they may have wanted certain things or to do certain things or to flex, not break, but flex certain laws, they would want to know people who were a part of the Sanhedrin. I tell you all this kind of backstory just to kind of let you understand the kind of power that Joseph had, the position that he had. It was a position that was greatly respected. It was a position uh, that where decisions would made, and it would affect generations of people. This is huge, huge, but the text also tells us though that he risked all of this, and all of what he was risking had to do with the events surrounding this man named Jesus, because what we see is in the text in Uh, verse 51, was that Joseph had not consented with the Sanhedrin's decision or action when it came to Jesus and his crucifixion. He's one of the few, very few, who, if not only, he's one of the few that is not yelling, crucify him. Now, if you have a unified group like this in the Sanhedrin, and their power matters. And all the rest around them are saying, crucify him, crucify him, and talking, we've got to get rid of this rabbi named Jesus. And he's the one saying, nope, I'm not a part of that. He stands out. He stands out. I'm sure all the other people who were a part of the council or the assembly knew who he was and knew where he stood. Anytime you have a dissenting vote, people are going to know. So Joseph's position here. He's putting it at great risk. He's not just going along with the crowd. Not only does he risk losing his position, therefore losing everything, whether it be financially or his career, you have to understand this is a shame-honor culture. He He is risking being kicked out of his community completely, completely, being disowned, if you will, by his own people. All of this has to be running through his mind as the events of Jesus is taking place through these trials and through this unjust crucifixion that Jesus go, it goes through. But again, Joseph does not go with the majority. He does not go with the majority in this moment. Instead, he saw something greater. He valued something more than this position that is the envy of every male in Israel. He saw something more than that. But then not only that, not only is he carrying all the pressure of being ostracized by his own people, not only is he carrying all the pressure of maybe completely losing his career, he also goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body. Think about that. The man who just sentenced Jesus to death on a cross... Now Joseph goes to him, and in doing so identifies with Jesus, goes to him and says, can I have his body to bury him? So not only is he carrying all the weight of all the people that he knows and love of his country, and not only carrying the weight of them disowning him, he goes to the very man who pronounced crucifixion, the only one who could, right? at this time, in this place, he goes to him and at the risk of his own life, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Romans were not always very forgiving. And if they're going to kill a movement, they want to kill the leader, but anyone who is identified as a strong follower, they're probably going to. And if Joseph of Arimathea is a man of wealth, which he was, He could be very influential and he could raise support. This is risky, very risky. But he walks in anyway. He goes anyway. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. He goes in before Pilate, identifying himself with Jesus. And he says, can I have his body? He could have been the next one hanging on a cross. But he still does it. He still does it. Again, I think this is amazing because Joseph of Arimathea is absolutely convinced that there is more value in this Jesus than there is in his position. And boy, is that not challenging today. It's challenging for us in so many ways, especially in an increasingly secularized society, a society where If you get caught praying outside of certain establishments, you could go to jail. You've probably seen that in the news. A society where, you know, actually saying that you're a Christian is not the most popular thing, especially in what would be considered popular circles. Yet Joseph of Arimathea does this. Breaking with a political structure, Rome, and also his religious structure— The Jews. But again, the value he saw and placed on Jesus and Jesus' body in this moment was so much more than his own position. The second thing that he teaches us is that Joseph valued godly conviction over complacency. You see, the truth is, he could have said what a lot of modern Christians say. You know, well, you know, who, this is rough. So I believe in Jesus in my heart, but I'm not going to do anything. He, he could have done nothing. It'd have been much easier. It certainly would have been much safer. He could have done nothing, he could take no action whatsoever. But there's something in Joseph where he has a godly, a heavenly conviction that pushes him to this place to take that step out, say, no, I do not think this trial is right. Then when Jesus is crucified, to go and actually retrieve the body. You know, it, it takes a lot of effort to be godly. Don't know if you know that or not. A lot of times we think that it just kind of happens passively. But to be godly and to have godly conviction instilled in us, that takes effort on our part. It takes us stepping out. It takes us risking some some things just like he's doing it right here. I think a lot of times we say, well, I want to be a person that has that kind of godly conviction. You know, I read about it in the Bible. I read about it throughout history, you know, and those kind of things. Boy, wouldn't that just be wonderful? Or it'd be wonderful for somebody else. I'd like to see it. But if we want to, I think, walk in Joseph's footsteps here, it, it takes us coming to that place where there is a godly conviction that overrides complacency. Complacency is so easy. you just kind of give in, right? You just kind of give in to what you want to do next, or what you just don't do what you think you should do next. You're just constantly giving in. But to have this grit that leads to godliness oh, that, that takes effort. It takes effort. You know, we don't passively become like Christ. This is not how it works. A lot of times that's how we think that's how it works. We say, well, you know, if God wants to do this or if he wants to change me here or change me there or whatever, then then he's he's free to do that, right? But the process of becoming more like Christ, that, that is something that is very active. It's not passive. It's a process, but it's an active process. Very important. The text describes Joseph in two particular ways that I think we would all want to be described as. And and that is, the text describes him as a good and righteous man. Good and righteous man. The description of Joseph being good is a description, again, of him being faithful to God. And that faithfulness is revealed by his actions. Not just him kind of sit back again passively and just saying, I believe these things, but it's his actions That revealed this goodness. And again, in the first century world, the the word good is synonymous with godly, right? We know that. But what this goodness produced in him was this thing called righteousness. And righteousness is not this kind of static position. The kind of righteousness that we see and that God calls for is, is this godliness in action. There's always an action. They always go together. Again, a lot of times we think we just kind of, godliness is kind of a state of being or something that kind of happens to us or happens within us, we say. But, But godliness is something that is when lived out, that righteousness is being lived out in us and it's spreading to those who are around us. Again, becoming complacent just means, you know, we just begin to coast and we just kind of go with the feelings and we just kind of let what happens next kind of take place. But with Joseph, there's a tenacity here. There's a tenacity here to stand against the religious people, his brothers and sisters, and to stand against Pilate in Rome there's something more going on here. There's a godly conviction taking place that's producing a boldness in him. So the description of he is good and he is righteous, again, is not just because some internal quality, it's because the actions that he lived out in his life. Because what happened and what he did here in taking Jesus' body, placing him in a tomb, that, that doesn't come to pass without deep conviction. Again, the value he placed on Jesus in this moment Outranked any other thing he could put value on in the world at this moment. So, the third thing first, he valued the person of Jesus over his position, he valued godly conviction over complacency. But the third thing that I would point out, and it'd be the last, is that he valued the kingdom of God over the would be kingdom of man. Again, he's in a huge position of power, he could have built on that. And wanted to build his career out of that. But the text tells us that Joseph is looking for the kingdom of God. Notice that language, looking for the kingdom of God. Now in English, it doesn't really get at uh, kind of that, the meaning behind looking here. This looking, some translations say waiting on. But again, this is an active word. It's actually not a passive word. He's looking for the kingdom of God, which means, it, it means to receive for oneself. It it literally means to take up. He is taking up right now. Something is going on. He is taking up the kingdom of God in this moment. That's what more behind the phrase looking. He's doing this active waiting as the kingdom is coming to pass right before him, as the kingdom is being manifested in front of him in this moment. But again, his value is in this thing called the kingdom. And notice how his theology, if the description is true, which I believe it is, notice how his theology here is simple, yes, but absolutely fundamental. It is based in the person of Jesus, and it is based in the fact that there's this kingdom that Jesus is receiving, or going to receive, or bringing to pass, or bringing into being. Again, same theology as the thief on the cross, remember? Same one. Jesus and he has a kingdom. He's a, there's a Messiah named Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Christ means Messiah, and he has a kingdom. This is absolutely important and fundamental to understand what Christianity is all about. Joseph believed in this kingdom so much it led him to take Jesus' body and place him in his own tomb, because he believed in a kingdom. He believed in a kingdom that was going to manifest itself in some way. And he wanted to be a part of it. Many times the modern notion of church, I think we think of church as just kind of local groups that kind of gather together to entertain to one another. Right? We just kind of entertain one another. We sing to one another and think, it's not what the kingdom is. It's not what the church is. We are these expressions or outposts of the kingdom spread throughout the whole world, reflecting that kingdom. Paul uses interesting language about this idea of being citizens of heaven. And citizenship, when he says that in Philippi, the people in Philippi would know what that means because citizenship uh, is is actually Roman language. Philippi was a Roman colony, right? And the purpose of a Roman colony was to spread Roman culture. And so when Paul says we are citizens of heaven, it's saying we are part of the outpost of heaven. Our job is to spread heaven's culture. And again, it gets at this word kingdom and looking for receiving for yourself the kingdom of God. Because this idea of receiving for yourself the kingdom of God is not just something that you keep for yourself. It's something, it's a mantle that you take up because you're going to go spread it to other people. That's what it means to be a citizen there. And so Joseph valued this kingdom and with it this kingdom work over his own religious kingdom that he had been brought up in, that he had served for many, many years, and over the kingdom that Rome was establishing in his backyard at that particular time. For many people, Joseph is a footnote in history. He's kind of an add-on to this story uh, that we see uh, with here at this dark moment, this holy Saturday of Jesus, of him just kind of being placed in his tomb. But, but Joseph in this moment, what amazes me the most is it's Joseph, not the twelve. It's Joseph of Arimathea, the one who is now risking everything. The disciples already left. Their jobs and careers and things and been following Jesus for three and a half years. But Joseph is now risking everything in this moment to go get Jesus' body and place him in his own tomb, being publicly identified with this man. And what amazes me is that in this moment, in Jesus' darkest hour, Joseph runs to him. Think about that. Jesus is dead, by the way. He's not sleeping. He is dead because he has to die for the sins of the world. And in this moment, what we see with human eyes, in Jesus' darkest hour, dead, Joseph goes to him. Now think about this. What does Joseph do? Joseph touches him. What's wrong with that? Under the law, Joseph is now unclean. He is unclean. He is defiled now. Now he has to go through a whole purification ritual. He is dirty and defiled now. He knows this. Did I mention he's a member of the Sanhedrin? He knows how this works. But he touches him. He carries him with Nicodemus, places him in his own tomb, his family's tomb. And I think Joseph did that, because remember this covenant's changing now. It's being transferred from the kingdom of law, to this kingdom of grace. And Joseph touches him. And while the law tells him he's dirty and he is now defiled, I, I think Joseph knew that he had been made clean once and for all. The way the Hebrew writer would put it in Hebrews 10 is that what all the sacrifices under the law could not do to cleanse sin, Jesus has now done once and for all. And Joseph is the first person who engages in this action in doing something that under the law you don't do. But he does it because the law is no more. Now it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of grace. And I think Joseph's actions reveal that he knew that. To think, to be chosen to usher in this moment, for the resurrection, to be a part of this holy moment, ushering in this new kingdom of grace. Wow, what a privilege. I think Joseph's life, if we, if we want to be called good and righteous, I'd like to be called that at my funeral, wouldn't you? I'd like for somebody to stand up and say, Chris was a good man. And not say it in the cheap way. And Chris was a righteous man. I'd really like that. I'd really like that. I think if we're going to do that, I think we have to walk in the footsteps here of our brother Joseph because it takes selfless service to the Savior for that to be the case. And that's what we see in him. He valued the person of Jesus and the conviction he got from Jesus and that Jesus kingdom above everything else. My prayer is that we would do the same. Amen. Father, would you help us Value Jesus above all else. We, we all have aspirations in life. We all work for somebody, with some people. We all, like Joseph, have pressures around us. But may we value Jesus above all that else. And Lord, we we all have feelings and thoughts and ideas and beliefs. But may we, like Joseph, have godly conviction. A conviction from heaven. May we not just coast into complacency. May we stand for what we believe. At the risk of it costing us something. And Lord, may we value this kingdom that you've invited us into. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom that's been paid for and bought by the blood of our Savior. It's so costly. This kingdom has been so costly. It cost you, your son. But in you giving him, we gain a Savior. Lord, may we value this kingdom over any other kingdom we may try to establish or be a part of. Lord, I thank you for Joseph and his example to us. I thank you for the new covenant that you appointed him to help usher into us into. And Lord, I pray that we would follow in his footsteps. He was a good and righteous man. May people say the same about us. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.